Well, the, you know, the old famous preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I think he was right when he said that the most difficult part of sermon preparation is knowing what, what you ought to preach. You know, that's strange because sometimes it comes so easy. There'll be sometimes that even by this afternoon or in the morning, I'll know exactly what it is that God wants me to preach next, next Sunday morning. At other times, I struggle with it all week long, and I think every preacher knows exactly what I'm talking about. You see, preaching is more than a matter of proclaiming the truth. I I could preach from any verse in the Bible, and it would all be true. But preaching involves proclaiming a particular truth that is determined by God. In other words, it's me being on the same page with God and uh, saying to you what God wants me to say. I'm not at liberty to preach what I please. I'm not at liberty to preach what you prefer. I'm obligated to preach what God wants. And I've got to tell you, sometimes it's not what you want and sometimes it's not what I want to say. And, And sometimes I feel like, you know, there would be something else that would be much more helpful or much more needful. And uh, so uh, naturally we all know who is the wisest and it's better if God has His will than that, you know, that I do my thing. And so it's never a mistake to preach what God wants you to preach, even though you might not understand the reason why. And when we want what God wants, great things happen. And I hope that's the case here today. I, I just about fainted whenever I, I went into the office and picked up a copy of the bulletin and I saw the bulletin cover. Anybody know what? What <laughs> Everybody's grabbing it. Psalms 100 and verse number, number 2, Serve the Lord with gladness. And I looked at that and I about fell over because... The title of my message this morning is The Gift of Gladness. And I want you to turn to Psalms 4, the fourth psalm, and we're going to look at just a part of verse number 7. Psalms 4, verse 7 says, Thou hast put gladness in my heart. I'm certain I don't need to convince anyone here this morning that we live in a troubled world and people have a a lot of different desires, they have a lot of different needs. And one of the things that I think that people desire the most is, is gladness. Call it whatever you want, gladness, joy, happiness, whatever. And and there's just about everybody wants it, but there's a lot of disappointed people. Because we live in a day and an age where there is a spirit of doom and gloom just everywhere that you go, pervading our society. And I think there are few things more common than misery. You can find it anywhere, even in Baptist churches. You know, it looks like that, that we've received the news that God is dead or mighty sick that he's not answering prayers anymore, that there is no hope whatsoever. And 
And, and we see that in the countenance of people. We hear it in the tone of their voice. And everywhere you look today, you see people that are absolutely miserable. And they have a lot of things on their want list and a lot of things that they desperately need. But sadly, gladness is missing in the lives of a lot of people. I'm glad that God has promised to provide not just what we need, but promised to provide the very things that we desire. And in this case, it has to do with gladness. The same God who put the heat in the sun, the water in the sea, and the sweet in the honey puts gladness in the heart of His children. This particular word gladness here, of course, the Old Testament in the Hebrew, but in the New Testament, the word gladness it comes from a Greek word that means, uh, means to, to have extreme joy. In other words, it's more than just having a grin on your face. It's more than just being a little bit happy. It has to do with extreme joy that is often accompanied by words and or bodily movement, such as smiling or even jumping. That'd scare a lot of Baptists to death today if somebody got really happy. I can remember preaching... Revival meetings in little old country churches, you know, years ago all over the country. I'd be preaching, get off on heaven or something, and all of a sudden you'd see all the little old ladies getting their hankies out, and they'd do this, and and all of a sudden they'd start waving their hankies, and then all of a sudden somebody might get up and just, I mean, just raising their hands and rejoicing in the Lord. And, you know, and today we're almost afraid to show any emotion we need to rediscover the importance of joy. And um, when we think about joy, this is really difficult for time's sake. When we think about joy, most people do not consider it to be all that important. It's a nice fringe benefit of being a Christian in their mind, but they don't understand really how important it is. For example, Nehemiah 8 and verse 10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, if I don't have joy, I'm what? Well, I'm weak. If the joy of the Lord is my strength and it's missing, then I'm weak. And if I'm weak, I'm not going to be able to resist temptation. If I'm weak, I'm not going to be able to endure my trials. If I'm weak, I'm not going to be able to complete my responsibilities here on this earth. So it's extremely important that we understand how important joy really is. And if we took a vote on it this morning, just about everybody would say, I want to be a joyful Christian. And let me tell you, every Christian has a reason to be joyful. The problem is not everyone understands how it is that, that we receive joy. Well, let me tell you, it's not inherited from your parents. You know, somebody says, well, I've got a bad temper because my, my parents were Irish. So, I, I, you know, I, naturally I've got this bad temper. And there are a lot of people, you know, they, they have attributed their cheerful spirit to their parents. And that might be true to the extent that they became a joyful person through nurture, but it was not by nature. 
We're not that way naturally, you see. So it's not something that you inherit. Not only that, it's not insured by your position. You can have a position running a multi-billion dollar corporation, but that doesn't mean you're going to be a joyful person. It's not inspired by your possessions. There have been a lot of millionaires that were absolutely miserable. I think about all of these stars, Elvis Presley and Janis Joplin, and that list goes on and on. People that had fortune and fame, they had everything except real, true peace and joy in their heart. It's not imputed by your peers. It's not something somebody else can do for you or get for you. It's not even implanted by your pleas and your prayers and your begging, your pleading. In other words, somebody says, well, I'm just so desperate to be joyful. You know, I want to psych myself up. You know, and if I can convince myself, you know, the old philosophy, you know, well, if you can believe it, you can receive it, that kind of nonsense. And it's really the same thing as the guys in the locker room before the football game. You know, some people don't have any idea what's going on down there when they're banging their head on the locker, you know, and screaming and yelling, trying to psych themselves up and make them, you know, make themselves some kind of a wild animal when they get on the football field. (laughs) And a lot of people take that approach when it comes to trying to be a joyful Christian. They try to psych themselves up. Well, let me tell you, it doesn't work that way. Joy is something that God gives us. Now, we might speak of it as a byproduct of what we do, because what we do is important. But whenever I say that, that, that joy is what God gives us, I'm talking about the fact that He is the source of joy and He is the enabler. So we've got to stop looking in all of the wrong places you know, uh, somebody looks to their family uh, for joy. Now, my family brings me great joy, but I cannot depend on my family to be a joyful Christian. Somebody else depends upon their friends. It's so amazing. Somebody, you know, will just seemingly have, have it all together, be a spirit-filled, happy Christian, and all of a sudden you watch these young couples and they'll break up or something, and, and what happens? Uh, all of a sudden they start acting like they hate Jesus. They drop out of church. They turn their back on God. They don't want anything to do with spiritual things. Why? Well, because they lost a friend. Girlfriend, boyfriend, or whatever it might be. They lost a friend. Let me tell you, people's always going to let you down. They're going to disappoint you. You're not going to find your joy in your friends or even in your family or in your church or your activities or your achievements or your possessions or any of those things. It's no wonder that people are miserable when they're looking in the wrong place. Others are miserable because they're living in the wrong way. It's one thing to look in the wrong place. It's another thing to be living in the wrong way. By that I mean they wander away from God who is the fountain of joy. Or they violate the precepts and the principles of God's Word of which in the keeping of them there's a great reward, the Bible says, and they, they ignore all of that. 
It might be that they even misjudge God on occasions. They see God as the Creator. They see God as the lawgiver. They see God as the judge and all of those things. But whenever they're going through their disappointments and their hard trials and all of the difficulties of life, all of a sudden they forget the fact that God is a loving Heavenly Father who never makes any mistakes. And sometimes people lose their joy because they start misjudging God. Or it might be they lose their joy because they allow the failures of others to become their downfall. Somebody else will let them down, disappoint them, hurt them in some way, and they allow that to rob them of their joy. Others others lose their joy because they're leaning on the wrong things. Wow, we could talk about that, couldn't we? My heart has been broken all week long. Every time I turn the television on and I see all of the... Well, you know what I see. I'm not even going to go there. I'm not even going to use that word. But it is so sad when you see so many deceived. Amen? I mean, that's heartbreaking to think that those people are leaning on a man or leaning on a church or leaning in some way on the sacraments or whatever else. Let me tell you, if you're not leaning on Jesus and nothing else, you're going to fall. He's the only one that can keep you up, the only one that can pick you up, the only one that can keep you going, the only one that can give you joy unspeakable and full of glory. Amen. Help yourself. That's right. We must look to Him, lean upon Him, trust Him. Look at verse number 5, for example. He says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness, and here it is, and put your trust in the Lord. If it's anywhere else, you'll never be a joyful Christian. Now, I want you to notice carefully the wording of our of our text. It says here in our text, Thou hast put gladness. In our heart. God put it there. It's not something that we accomplished. It's not something that we did. It's not something that we created. God put it there. And that's why we're talking about the gift of gladness. It's amazing. It's amazing when you consider how unworthy we are that God had put gladness in our heart. It's amazing whenever you consider how difficult life is. Boy, I'll tell you, there's some people, you know, that it seems like absolutely everything is against them. Every imaginable problem that you can think of has happened to them, and they have finally come to the conclusion, well, you know, others might enjoy life, but it's just impossible for me. There might be folks here today that have experienced some, some sad experience in your life and you're going through the deep waters of affliction and you've been so disappointed that you, you, you've come to the conclusion, I'll never be able to laugh again. I'll never have that joy that the preacher is talking about. Well, I want you to know that because of this promise, 
that you can be a joyful Christian. I want to show you four reasons why. Number one, because of the might that is the power of the Scriptures. Because of the power of the Scriptures, Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. I love Hebrews 4 and verse number 12. In fact, I have framed in my office a page out of a first edition 1611 King James Version of the Bible. And it so happens by the grace of God that the page I have has Hebrews 4 and verse 12 on it where it talks about the Word of God being alive. This is a living book. This book is unlike any other book on the face of the earth. It, it, It is more than just information. It is inspiration. It is alive, and, and when we read it with an open heart, when we read it, God's Word does amazing things in our life. And sometimes, you know, we just read a verse, or maybe we're, we're hanging on a certain phrase, and, and we meditate upon it. And maybe sometimes we're just considering a particular word in the Bible. And God begins to do something without any real effort on our part, and it changes our attitude and begins to transform our life. That's why if you are neglecting the Word of God every day, you're doing yourself a terrible injustice. And if you're here this morning and you've been grieving over your guilt, because even as Christians we still fail God on occasion, And it's a horrible, terrible thing when you know that you've sinned against God and you're grieving over that guilt. Or it might be that you're burdened down with the with the blues. It might be you're confused by your circumstances. You don't know why this has happened to you. It might be that you've been frightened by your foes or you're lonely in life, fearful of the future, or maybe you're dreading death. I I, I don't know what it is. But I know you can be in any of those situations and, and just get in the Word of God and God has a way of just bringing to life those verses in a way that it just reaches out and grabs you by the throat and gets your attention and, and does something that seems to be impossible. So when it says that the Lord puts gladness in our heart, understand that He uses the might of the Scriptures to do that. Not only that, but there's also the miracle of the Holy Spirit. Well, we Baptists, it seems like, have totally forgotten about the Spirit of God. What a shame that is. He's become the forgotten person of the Trinity. The wonderful thing is the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God, I'm talking about the same Spirit that moves upon the waters of the deep, the same Spirit that was active in the creation, the same Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that used those men and inspired the Word of God, that same Spirit is living and dwelling in your heart and He has sealed you until the day of redemption and He's never going to desert you. 
Amen. He's living within you and He's there for the purpose of enlightening your mind. He's there to empower your hands. He's there to encourage you in your hour of need. He's there to provide whatever it is that you need. I often think about those those apostles when the Lord announced to him that he was going to be crucified and and then later on as he gathers them together in John chapter 13 and they're in the upper room and he begins to lay it out for them, the plan. And I think about him meeting with them and giving them the information that I'm going to be taken away from you. Now remember, they have forsaken all to follow him. And he says, I'm going to be taken away from you. They have depended upon Him for absolutely everything as they followed Him from place to place. And He says, I'm going back to heaven to the Father. And they're thinking, what in the world are we going to do? And He has informed them that you're going to be hated and despised and you'll even be killed for My sake. And they're thinking, how are we going to endure that? And he gives them the answer when he says that he's going to send another comforter. That word comforter doesn't mean just somebody that's going to pat you on the back and, you know, tell you it's going to be all right. That word has to do with being a helper, someone called alongside of to help. The Greek word is paraclete. That I'm going to send you another. That word means another of exactly the same kind. And what Jesus is trying to instill in their mind is the fact that I'm gone does not mean you're going to be shortchanged. It does not mean that you're going to have to do without because the ministry, the might, the power of the Holy Spirit will be sufficient to meet your need whatever it is. And I'm telling you, listen, He hasn't changed one bit. He lives within you. There's no reason for us to ever be anything but joyful when we realize that the Spirit of God is living within us. And He's the change agent. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse number 18 talks about that You know, as we look upon the Lord, as we gaze, as it were, in a glass and behold the glory of the Lord, we are changed from glory unto glory, even as by, what? That same Spirit. Change in my life as a Christian is not the result of what I do. It's the result of God working within me. It's not about changes that I make. It's changes that... God makes in my life. He's the change agent. And whenever Paul speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, there in Galatians chapter number 5, he talks about love and joy and peace and gives a list of nine different graces that make up the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that produces those things in our life. So joy is not something that I can conjure up. It's something not something that somebody else can give to me. It's something that God, notice, He put gladness in my heart. God puts it there. Not only that, but we can have 
gladness because of, the, of God's management of our situations. Whenever I said to Bev this morning, I said, I, I cannot believe this. She said, what are you talking about? She knew I was looking at the bulletin. I said, I can't believe what you put on the, in, the, in the bulletin. She said, what are you talking about? And uh, I mentioned the fact that I'm going to be preaching on the gift of gladness this morning. Look what you put there on the front page of the bulletin. I said, God had to be in that. And she responded by saying, there are no accidents with God. Smart lady. Amen? That's true. Listen, there are no accidents with God. God governs in the affairs of man. God, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, is always aware, alert, awake, active, and able to do whatever we need. How can I not be a joyful Christian knowing that God is at work in all of the affairs of my life? And sometimes, you know, he's working behind the scenes doing things that need to be done. And I don't even know it. And there are other times that things will happen that I do not understand. Things that I would never have chosen for myself. And yet, and yet God is doing that. And remember the promise, it's for some good. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord. I can't even begin to tell you how many different funerals that I've preached over the years and how many times that I've read the little poem that says, You may know beyond all doubting in this trial that you're passing through that a loving God sustains you and some good He's planned for you. I believe that. You see, the same one that watches over the sparrow is watching over you. The same one that knows the number of hairs on your head knows what your every need is. And we live every moment of every day under His providential care. Even the smallest, most minute detail of your life is ordered by the one who has all wisdom. Not some dummy on the throne but the one who has all wisdom, the one who is ever loving, the one who has your best interest at heart, the one who is able to do all things, either causes or he allows all of these things to happen. And we cannot always trace his hand, but we can always trust his heart, knowing that he doesn't make any mistakes. That puts gladness in my heart, knowing that God is involved in all of the situations of my life. But then there's another way that God's put gladness in my heart, and that has to do with the ministry of the saints. And we see numerous examples of this in the Bible. You know, I think one of the ways in which the greatness of Paul is best seen is the fact that over and over again he mentions others that ministered to him and helped him and aided him in his ministry. Remember, the Spirit of God is the one guiding him to do this. So here he is writing an extremely important document, such as the letter to the Romans, 
that has to do with our justification, sanctification, and glorification. And he gets down there near the end, and what does he do? He starts naming names of people. People we don't even know anything about. But those were people that were dear to his heart and people that administered to his life. And he wants us to know that he would not have succeeded without their aid. Not only does he tell us what others did for him, but over and over again, Paul uses that little phrase, one another. You, te- you see, he's telling us how we ought to relate to one another as members of the church. We ought to love one another, pray for one another, help one another, forgive one another, and the list goes on and on and on. So the Bible is very clear that the ministry of the saints is a very key, important ingredient when it comes to this matter of God putting gladness in our heart. And every Christian can think of someone who has helped them. Right? It might have been a Sunday school teacher. It might have been an old silver-haired daddy, or it might have been a grandmother that took time to tell you about Jesus. But every single Christian can think of some other Christian that helped them along the way. And it put gladness in your heart even to think about them to this very day makes you glad. Let me tell you, someone needs you. Never underestimate the importance of your life. You play an important part in someone's life even if they're not aware of it. They might not appreciate you. They might not listen to you. They might not cooperate with you. They might not even like you. But they need you. And for them to ever become a spirit-filled, joyful Christian, they need what you have to offer that God put in your heart. Not only that, but you need to be needed. You need to be needed. Whenever we think about joy, when we think about gladness, being happy in this old sinful world and what have you, and I've often said you're always best to others when you're good to your, or good, you're best to yourself when you're good to others. And I believe that's true. You know, most of our misery is brought on by the fact that we are too inward focused. Most of our misery has to do with our own selfish living. And if we could just get a sense of purpose that somebody needs me and let that motivate us, it'll get us out of bed in the morning, it'll keep us going throughout the day, it'll pick us up whenever we fall, it'll give you peace at the end of the day, it'll ease your conscience when you put your head on the pillow at night, it'll make you useful to the kingdom of God, and I'll guarantee you it'll bring gladness to others. That's why the Lord's church is so important. I've heard people say, well, you know, I don't need the church. I, you know, I, I'm a Christian, but I can worship God down at the river or wherever just as easy as I can in the church. No, you need the church. You need, you need what God's people can offer. And by the way, they need you. Are you going to be so stinking selfish that you separate yourself from God's people and you refuse to minister to God's people? 
all because you've got something you want to do. The Lord established the church for a reason, and that's because we need each other. And God puts gladness in our heart, but He often uses the ministry of the saints to do that. I started out by talking about how important joy really is. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. So if we don't, listen, if we don't have joy, if we don't rejoice, we're not only a weak Christian, we are a disobedient Christian. Have you ever noticed how people really get bent all all out of shape if, if someone doesn't have love in their life? You've probably, you've probably had people say or you've heard them say, how can you be a Christian? You don't have any love whatsoever in your heart. How can you dare call yourself a Christian? Why do you pick out love to make that point? What about joy? You see, some of those same critics that talk about how awful it is that you don't have love in your heart, they don't have any joy in their life. They're miserable. So we're not only weak, we're disobedient to God. And let me tell you, there's only one way to ever deal with disobedience. We do it like we do with any sin. What's that? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Running down the aisle and falling on your face and saying, Oh dear God, you know, I really failed and I'm going to do better from now on. And you jump up and start out of the building. You're going to fail before you open the car door. We've got to come into agreement with God about how awful our sin is. That we've lost our joy and there's a reason for it. In David's case, you know the story, and there in Psalms 51, what was his prayer? Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. You see, he understood how awful, how terrible sin was. He understood how much he needed that joy of the Lord in his life. And what did he say? Lord, you give me that joy back, and what would he do? He said, I'll go tell others. You see, it's that joy that motivates you to do the things that God wants you to do. When you lose your joy, you're in trouble. Several years ago, I'll never forget Bev and I, we hit the panic button. We were, I can't remember all the details, but you'd have to see the church buildings from where we came from. We bought a big old Catholic church building. I mean, that thing is huge. And we had another building right next to it, a big two-story building right next to it. Well, some ways, we're walking around showing these people the property or talking or whatever. Jason at that time was how old, honey? He was a little bitty fellow, you know, just, he just tottering around. Some way he got separated. Let me tell you, we tore that place apart looking for him. We didn't know where he was. And he was too valuable to just say, well, I hope that kid finds his way home. No, we went looking for him. You, you think about losing your 
your savings or your bank account, all, all of your possessions. Th- think, think about losing your keepsakes. Sometimes that's a, usually a lot more valuable than the money in the bank. You got something that, you know, mom or dad or grandpa or grandma gave you and you're going to hang on to it for life and somebody comes along and steals it or you lose it and what do you do? You tear the house apart trying to find it. What I'm trying to get you to see is if you've lost your joy as a Christian, there's a reason for it and it's a serious problem. And, and, and you ought not to leave this place today until you deal with that issue in your life. Whatever it is. Just the fact that it's absent tells you there's a problem of some kind. Don't leave here without doing business with God. The Lord put gladness in my heart, the psalmist said. And He wants to put gladness in your heart this morning. I know you've got problems and troubles, and I know some of you don't feel good. I know some of you going through the deep waters of afflictions, and you've been disappointed and hurt and all. I understand that. But the Lord can give us a joy that transcends all of that. We're talking about the joy of the Lord. Rejoice, what? In the Lord. We don't rejoice because of the trial because of the pain. No, we rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because our joy is rooted and grounded in the one who can never lie and will never fail and loves us more than life itself and proved it when he died on the cross. The Lord put joy in my heart and he wants to put it in your heart this morning. Let's stand together. Father, How thankful we are for all that we have and all that you've done as a result of your dear Son, Jesus, our Savior. How grateful we are for the great potential that we have. That if we've sinned against you, that we can be forgiven. If we've lost our joy, it can be restored. If peace has taken wings and flown away in some, some way and now we're just miserable and troubled, we, we can have that peace that passeth all understanding. So I pray this morning that you'll break down every barrier, that you'll remove every hindrance, defeat every enemy, and give us victory here this morning. May we understand who we are and what we can have because of Jesus. And I pray you'll put gladness in our heart and make us a shining example of what a Christian ought to be that we might bring gladness into the lives of others. So we beg it in Jesus' dear name. Now while we stand as we lift our voice in song, if God is speaking to your heart this morning about anything whatsoever, would you let him have his way?